Listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Bill McKibben. Welcome, Bill. Good to be with you, T. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, this show is is pre-taped, uh, but it's going to be just great whenever it's coming over the airwaves, <laughs> right? Knock on wood. Um, Bill is is in town, and he's actually on a pretty a pretty extensive tour for his latest book, Deep Economy: The Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future. the 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 Bill McKibben Reader is also out just recently too. Just recently. Just hot off the press, That's basically, it. and also for your your activism. Uh, well, your 350.org. That's right. Our attempt to get a global grassroots campaign on climate change underway at 350.org. 350.org. And you said you've got offices now in Vermont and over in California. In California, on the Pacific Rim, because it's global. So we got to be in as many time zones as we can. Right. <laughs> Hopefully not on the fault line, but <laughs> nonetheless. Um, all right. Well, before going any further, I'm going to read your short, your short bio here, Bill. Uh, Bill McKibben is the author of a dozen books, including The End of Nature and Deep Economy, the Wealth of Communities, and the Durable Future. A former staff writer for The New Yorker, he writes regularly for Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, and The New York Review of Books, among other publications. In April 2007, he organized the Step It Up National Day of Rallies, the largest global warming protest to date. He is a scholar in residence at Middlebury College and lives in Vermont with his wife, the writer Sue Halpern, and their daughter. So once again, welcome. Welcome, Bill. And the books, I should say, the ones, the two books that we've just mentioned, Deep Economy and the Bill McKibben Reader, are out by Holt Paperbacks, an imprint of Henry Holt and Company. So that's like, that's a big house to be with, isn't that's it? That's it. So your books are going to be everywhere, <laughs> as if they haven't been. For, so The End of Nature, that was your... That th- was my first book back in 1989. So a long time ago. 1989. And that's and you've got um, 11 books, right, listed here. I think that's about right. We're probably about an even dozen almost, yep. It's com- Do you have one on deck that will be coming out uh, no, the, soon, or, uh, or is 350 I'm, taking up a I'm, lot of time? They're publishing a huge anthology that I edited of American environmental writing since Thoreau. Uh, Library of America will publish it on Earth Day. Um but no, that's I'm for the moment I'm busy, busy uh, fighting, not writing. How, how do you do that? Uh, has that been sort of something that's always been a part of your More life? More all the time. More all the time. Um, the last couple of years have been heavily devoted to organizing. We, with a few college-age friends of mine, started something last year called Step It Up, org and we organized fourteen hundred demonstrations all around this country about climate change, including a couple of wonderful ones in Ann Arbor. Um, uh, These were the biggest 
grassroots environmental activism since Earth Day in 1970. Um, and now we're trying to do the same thing on an international scale. So it takes a fair amount of time. So so how do you move from the, the national scale, which which you've had success with, to the international scale? Because you're, you're a traveler. It seems as if you're, yeah. the book, you're constantly, we'll have to talk about your writing method later, but um, you're traveling a lot. <laughs> For, to do the activist work on an international scale is going to be interesting, because really no one's ever quite done it before, and really it's only with the advent of the web that it's even possible to imagine. And of course, much of the world, and we really want to be especially strong in developing countries, much of the world doesn't have access all that much to the web yet, but pretty much everywhere by now has access to texting over mobile phones. Mm. So that may turn out to be the key technology in the next year or two as we try to spread this message around the the country at 350.org. That's a good pun, too. Yeah. Like, the te- spread this text message around That's it. the globe. Yeah, because I guess that the, the cost of a, a mobile phone is, is pretty good. You know, you can, most, most places can you go, yeah. no matter how far back you get, um, in most villages, there's somebody who has one, and it's, that's their business, renting time to their neighbors. Uh, you know, it, and the reason that it's happening is because in most places... Most places in the world obviously aren't wired for telephone, and it's much cheaper to stick in the mobile technology. You know, get like have a tower somewhere, right? Exactly. And then, yeah. Exactly. Although, of course, we don't know exactly what the the repercussions of the tower frequencies are going to be. <laughs> but anyway, we're always doing. This, I, this I book the, was a real head trip for me. Yeah. I just have to tell you, Bill, a real eye opener. Good. A long, a long time coming. I feel like I have to confess to you, uh, of course, because I was raised Catholic. Because um, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I avoided seeing the Al Gore film, uh-huh. the, An Inconvenient Truth, yeah. because I was just like, I can't take it uh-huh. right now. <laughs> I mean, like it has to come in uh-huh. little by little. But um, And so I think that's something we could talk about um, with your book because there are so many important facts in here, but also the writing of it uh, is, is so, it makes it clear for someone... I think it's approachable for people oh, who, who who maybe haven't, but but probably you're hearing that all the time. No, right? that, I mean that's the idea. You know, that's I'm. Uh, that's what writers do: is try to make things uh, elegant. And and there's even humor in it. That's good too. <laughs> Hopefully intentional. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, of course it's intentional. Um, there's yeah, there are so many layers. I was sort of I was struck when reading the introduction to to your reader, the Bill McKibben reader. Uh, I believe it's in the the, the introduction there, Bill, um, where you talk about your early days at the New Yorker. Mm. And <laughs> we maybe we can go back to that as well, but. Um, Leaping to when you left mm. for your own for principal reasons, um, you said the last article that you did on your way out was something where you 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 looked at everything in your apartment, like you you looked at the pieces of everything oh, yeah. in your city apartment. Um, I followed every pipe and wire back as far as I could. It was a long piece and a lot of reporting. You know, I ended up in Brazil because Con Ed was getting its oil for it. 
uh, you know, some of its power generation from Brazil and in the Grand Canyon because that's where their uranium was coming from and out on the garbage barges, you know, from the city and through New York has the vastest uh, water supply system in the world, you know, quite wonderful. Um, that's a whole different way to see a city if you see it absolutely. as a plumber. Well, and for me, it was uh, a reminder that even New York, maybe especially New York, is intensely dependent on the real world, the physical world. and probably, Nature. <laughs> probably one of the first things that sort of started me down an environmental path. It seems so. That um, because you said it also shook you up. It did, uh, you know, just to... Just to be reminded of um, what a physical world this is. And that you're not isolated. Like you, It seems like many people in cities believe that they'll be fine because <laughs> they don't see the pieces right. of it, which you said that you hadn't really right. thought because about until Manhattan this article. Because Manhattan can create money, unlike almost any place in the world. Many people, illusions. People tend to feel that they're quite uh, self-reliant, but uh, not so much. Um, at the same time, I was reading, starting to read some of our great environmental writers, probably most importantly, Wendell Berry. The Who the book is dedicated to, the, the Great the Kentucky farmer and essayist and novelist and poet. And Who's still doing well there. Very much so. A friend of mine rode his bicycle down to, to visit him. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. There you go. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> At the break. <laughs> this is about you, Bill. <laughs> Uh, but, but, it, that, but dedicated to Wendell Berry. That all, uh, that all added up in my mind to sort of starting down this path. And, and um, what I was going to say about that, I'd love to read that article. Is that actually in the reader then? Is that included, your very early um, New Yorker? There, it's, I think there might be a little. I'm not sure if there's a piece of that in there or not. I've kind of forgotten what we, what exactly we ended up putting in. There was... Uh, uh, a sobering amount to choose from. I've written more than, maybe more than I should have over the years. <laughs> written a lot. And um, from many different outlets, too. Yep. No, I've, I, you know, as I say, I'm a writer. That's my, I started out as a newspaper man. I, you know, write, um, I write uh, easily. And yeah, so there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> How do you decide which which place? Because I noticed in some of the the later ones, it was like outside and 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 I was just wondering, do you come up with an idea and then you think, well, this is the best place? Pretty much, commission yeah. It from and there you are or? you know because there are places that are just appropriate for different sort of things. You know, um, if if I want to write, if I think something's going to take five or six thousand words to explain, that narrows the field of possible. Outlets considerably, you know, um, um, and happily there are still a few of those in the world. I, I, I so that would be like the Atlantic, or the Atlantic, or the New York Review of Books, or Harper's, or Harpers mm -hmm. um, all of which I have written for a fair amount. Um, that sort of tradition of great glossy magazine journalism is. Um, you know, it's still out there. It's sort of been under siege for years, but these magazines endure, and they have audiences, and um, I'm awful grateful for them, both as a writer and as a reader. 
Because it seems like at a certain point in your life, you you and your wife moved from New York City to go into the Adirondacks, into the one of the largest forests. Yeah, Is the that... Adirondacks are the great wilderness of the American East, bigger than Glacier and Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Yosemite combined. Very remarkable place. And that's why you chose it. Uh, it was less <laughs> calculated than all that. Um, but uh, I didn't really know that much about it when we moved there. In a sense, we chose it because we were, didn't have any money. And uh, it was, in those days anyway, a very cheap place. And we could, you know, cut our own firewood to heat our house and, and all that. And yet it was still within hailing distance, five or six hours drive of New York City, where we were still connected in certain ways and so it was the place to be but it turned out to be for me the perfect place to be because it's the greatest recovered ecosystem on earth and because you said fdr plant had a program that planted uh, is that that forest with the well the i mean in there's there's little patches of of forests that have been replanted but mostly it's just this huge six million acre area that's been left to come back on its own and it's uh, beautiful and big and wild and it was a good place to be thinking about the themes uh, you know that came to define my writing uh, with the end of nature and 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 subsequently and and you mentioned that that you were still connected, you know, five hours away to New York, but that it seemed like you had that at that point in your life, you had a community of writers. Of course, your wife, Sue Halpern, mm. is a writer. Yep. But other than that, you were pretty isolated, except for the you, you you joined a community of writers that were also concerned about the environment. Well, I mean, just nationally, there was like this, Gary Snyder. There was or, this sort of there's a there's a wonderful we live right now in the midst of a wonderful coterie of nature writers. It's our great contribution to world letters, uh, this writing about the conflict and the uh, pleasure of humans bumping up against the natural world, a sort of tradition that begins in this country most powerfully with Thoreau. And then like Edward Abbey or... But at the moment, yes, you know, uh, has amazing practitioners. Uh, Abby, who of course is a few years dead, but Barry Lopez and mm. Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry and Terry Tempest Williams and Janice Ray and Michael Pollan and Barbara Kingsolver and David Abram and Rick Bass and on and on Richard Nelson, uh, you know, just on and on and on. I, I think the finest writers working in this country today. And are these people in your anthology that will be coming out then? They are. Okay. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back. We are listening to Living Writers today, Bill McKibben.
welcome back. If you're just joining us today on Living Writers, Bill McKibben. Um, and I'd like to say thanks to Alex Bellhodge for stepping in, being the, the engineer extraordinaire. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> um, so, so, Bill, you're holding the... <laughs> it sounds strange to say so, Bill. You're holding the Bill McKibben Reader yeah. in your hands. Clever title, that, eh? <laughs> it's very catchy. Um, so what, what are you going to read for us? Well, I don't know. I just sort of opened it. I'm going to read a short piece. Uh, it's now 15 years old almost. Um, uh, that I wrote for a very odd place for Forbes. Oh. Um, um, but, and to make sense of it, um, you need to know that in those days, cell phones were still a very brand new invention. They um, were the huge ones, right? Like sort of like carrying a, a separate briefcase. Out on a recent hike, I stopped for lunch at the edge of a high mountain pond. I could see another solitary hiker on the other side of the water, stretched out on a shelving rock about 100 yards away. And I could hear him talking. Sound carries extremely well across water. Never negotiate a deal on a canoe. It's so beautiful up here, he was saying. It's so peaceful. What's happening with you? What I couldn't figure out was who he was talking to until I pulled up in my binoculars and saw, of course, that he had a cell phone. For a moment, I felt vastly superior, and then I reflected a bit. It's true I wouldn't carry a phone with me up a mountain, but I'd carried my world with me nonetheless, marched right up there with my eyes fixed on the same vague middle distance that you see when you drive. My mind was abuzz with images, opinions. My mind was its own little CNN, happily chattering away with a thousand dispatches an hour. We live in the middle of the buzz, those billions of microprocessors that have spawned like springtime frogs in the last quarter century are constantly sending us information, data, images. Our minds marinate in it till we're worried when it shuts off. What do you do first when you walk into an empty hotel room? Savor the silence or turn on the TV? And this, of course, was before the answer became connect to the broadband. Right. Even when we get away from the machines for a while, even when we leave the phone at home, the buzz comes with us. Quiet, solitude, calm. These are no longer automatic parts of the human experience. You have to fight as hard for them as a farm boy had to fight for novelty and thrill a century ago. How many minutes can you watch a sunset before your mind grows hungry for some faster diversion? How long can you stare up into the night sky? This constant whispering in our ears, this constant dancing in front of our eyes, that's how technology changes us, weaning us away from ourselves. How can you figure out what you really want when someone's always talking to you, when there's always another home page to click through, when you can't warm yourself by a mountain lake without checking in at home? Electronic communication for the first time makes culture ubiquitous. Almost nobody read books five hours a day or went to the theater every night. We live in the first moment when humans receive more of their information secondhand than first. Instead of relying primarily on contact with nature and with each other, we rely primarily on the pre-chewed, on someone else's experience. Our quite life is quite literally mediated. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's the direction in which we need to evolve on an ever more crowded planet. 
But I think it may be breeding a kind of desperation in us, too, a frantic, reactive nervousness, that low, rumbling broadcast that comes constantly from ourselves, the broadcast that tells us who we are, what we want from life. That broadcast is jammed by all the other noise around us, the lush static of our electronic age. We look for solitude in our expensively silent cars, but first the radio, then the phone, then the computer, and the facts intrude. We look for peace in the mountains, but we drag the world along on a tether. To quote Thoreau is to risk rejection as a romantic. But here goes. Let us spend one day as deliberately as nature and not be thrown off the track by every nutshell and mosquito's wing that falls on the rails, he writes. Now that we've built a technosphere to amplify the sound of every nutshell and to broadcast high-quality pictures of each mosquito's wing, it's even better advice, albeit harder than ever to follow. Silence, solitude, darkness, these are the rarest commodities after a half-century of electronics. The incredible economics of the information age mean that almost anyone can afford a large-screen television, a, a broadband connection. But how many can afford peace and quiet? Thank you, Bill. Thanks for reading. You're welcome. There's so many ideas and everything. It's really sort of sort of boggling. The buzz, mm. right? And that was 15 years ago when you you wrote that. Uh, yeah, 12, I think. Or 12. Um, so when you were writing for uh, so this and this this piece, you 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 placed in Forbes. Is that something, because you, you feel that's something, of, obviously, you have to reach everyone. There are times when, when, <laughs> when I, my desire is not to preach to the converted. Yeah. And so I figured that would be a place where everybody who was reading it had a Blackberry in their pocket or a cell phone or, you know, whatever it was. Even though that um, was more cutting edge at the time. Well, those were the people in those days who would have had them, you know, uh, the people with the with the money and the need to be constantly wired into the fast-changing world of really important things like stocks and bonds. Yeah, and often are so rewarded for it. But but then I, that kind of connects us to then deep economy where you're – But because in a way – the people who can also, for example, go up in the mountains and at least be aware that there's a buzz and images going through their mind, like their own CNN, mm-hmm. um, as you said, uh, that there's there's no there's no pr- uh, price value put on being able to do that, and that would be something that would be very um, human and and bring satisfaction. That's right. We're not we're um. We're not always very good hedonists. We don't judge very well the things that bring us pleasure, or we're, you know, too easily uh, seduced by whatever some advertiser tells us will. In my experience, you know, contact with friends and contact with the natural world are the great pleasures, and um, you know, contact with your uh, electronics, if it's a pleasure at all, is a pretty minor one. Mm-hmm. Somehow, it it people feel like if they have enough knowledge, though, if uh, or access to information, that will equal knowledge in some way that makes them more powerful. Well, there's a sense, of course, in which that's true. Um, it's not access to, not it's not wisdom. It's often not yes. even knowledge. It's just data, facts. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, no, if you're determined to uh, 
be at the very cutting edge of everything, then you better not unplug even for an hour. And I have mixed relationship with all these technologies. They're the thing that allow us to do the kind of organizing that we're doing now. Um, we try to make very conscious use of them, of the Internet, to bring people together in the real world um, and try to kind of hybridize the the virtual and the real in uh, because we think that's important and we think it's more politically effective and whatever. You know, we used the Internet to set up these 1,400 demonstrations, but they all took place in, in the real person. world. Right. Yep. And then we took the images that people got of them and uploaded them back onto the web and sort of made it larger than the sum of its parts. Are there some... I'll have to... Actually, I'm kicking myself that I didn't go to 350.org before talking with you. Are there parallels also to moveon.org? Because they, they try to make um, have meetings in communities. They right? try and to do so some that, of that. Is that uh, what you mean to bring the people? Yes. Although MoveOn, who we work with, I think is more more confined to the virtual space than 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 we want to be. But, I, you know, they're... they're, they're thing works really well. They're terrific at what they do. I like them. Well, and I guess it's good to have these alliances. Absolutely. Because surely that's how we work. We don't try to build, (laughs) we don't try to build big organizations. We don't, I think we can, we think now that we can do organizing without big organizations and built around campaigns, not around uh, institutions. And so that's the kind so of work what, we try to do. So building it a, around a campaign, so how would that be different? Then? Okay, so here's 350.org. Uh, 350 is the number that the scientists tell us now, expressed in parts per million carbon dioxide, that we have, that represents the absolute upper limit of the safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's a very tough number because we're already past it. Aren't we at 330? Oh, no, we're past we're it. We're at 385. Oh, okay. And we've got to cut back... Um, sharply if the world is going to return back to that safe level. Um, So our campaign is going to be about taking that number and getting it into every brain on the planet over the next 18 months. Um, And and so we will need, you know, every kind of thing in the real world and on the web that we can think of. Music, art, you know, yes. guerrilla video, uh, lots of political activism, lots of connections to everybody's, you know, uh, organizations and bicycle teams and uh, fraternities and, uh, you know, on and on and on. Um, the only way to make that happen is over the web, but if it just stays on the web, it won't have the impact political impact in the real world that we need it to. So it's a fine balance. Or it also seems like then it would have um, less of a chance to survive, too, because at least from from reading Deep Economy, it seems that the the, the human component, the actual... The, the, we're talking about, like earlier, the physicalness of nature, but the physicalness of the human beings uh, being connected, and, and that that would make it last rather than having something be completely virtual good point um well let's talk a little bit about deep economy because you're also uh, on the road for that is is, uh, the other side of my life the not global side um 
It's an attempt to understand what the world might look like on the other side of cheap fossil fuel and the kind of globalized uh, economy that it spawned. It's an effort to ask whether our basic American credo, more is better, any longer is operable. Um, and I think the answer to that is that it isn't, um, that it no longer is producing um, um, either. I mean, it's obviously causing enormous environmental trouble, our endless fixation on growth, but it's no longer returning dividends to us as people either. The average American is, by all statistical measures, considerably less happy than they were 50 years ago. That's that's uh, kind of crazy, isn't it? Is it because we know more things that to be unhappy about no, or just being disconnected? Or? It's because the, all the data would indicate that it's because Americans feel a profound loss of community. And, and in fact, we have lost a lot of community. We've spent 50 years taking the point of our economy as building bigger houses farther apart from each other. Um, and that's resulted in us running into each other a good deal less in the course of any day. The average American has half as many close friends as they did 50 years ago, which is a big and sobering and saddening change. Um, and it more than, more than uh, outweighs whatever benefit we've gotten from our kind of trebling of our standard of living in that 50 years. We're not as happy. So my sense is that we need to move in the direction of a much more uh, community economy than we're at at the moment. Um, and the exemplars of that are things like local farmers markets. Uh, good environmentally, you use a lot less energy. Good socially, the average shopper has 10 times as many conversations at the farmers market as they do at the supermarket. It's a different thing. That's good. Yeah. And community radio. Community radio is something I write about a lot and believe in a lot. Um, I think one of the most discouraging things that's happened in uh, in the last couple of decades is watching a few big companies buy up all the radio frequencies in North America and use them to broadcast the same crap around the clock, you know? Um losing all the kind of beautiful local focus of radio. So it's very good to see community radio, college radio, public radio, low-power FM, all these kind of things resurging, um, beginning to, you know, and they're very, they, they go against our idea of what should work. Um, you know, public radio, the business plan is, pretty weak, you know. <laughs> it depends on everybody voluntarily mailing in money for something that they could get for free anyway. Right. But everybody right. does, so well, it works. Let's, let's take a short break. We'll come back and talk a little more about this. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and we'll be back.
back if you're just joining us. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Bill McKibben. Thanks again for coming, Bill. My pleasure. Hi, and you're, and you're, what, what are the upcoming cities so that people, because sometimes people stream, so... Oh, I've been all over the place. I, I forget what's coming up. I guess I'll be in Boston, back out on the West Coast in L.A. and San Francisco, and be in Hawaii. I'll be in Kentucky. I'll be in Houston. I'll be in D.C. Um, I'll be in New York. All of April, basically, you All said as well. Yep. And are you going any any international dates where you'll? Not this spring, but I'll be in China in June. Um, and for the Olympics, or no, before the Olympics. Before. Yeah, it'll be during the Olympics. There'll be no point in going because everyone will be focused on that, and I, I've got some reporting to do over there. And it was. It was interesting that you said that they were they're trying to move out uh, some of the the industry and to get in like uh, air ionizers to make it so that you can actually see some blue sky by the time the Olympics happen. They will happen. they will shut down all the industry in the Beijing area for three or four weeks. Everyone's just been told they're going on vacation. Um, they're not going to be at work <laughs> because I mean. You could no more have, you know, on a normal normal day in Beijing, you could no more have the Olympics than you could have them on the moon. I mean, everyone would just fall over gasping. Um, you know, most days you can't see the sun and can't tell where in the sky the sun is in Beijing. Uh, the, the air pollution is dense. It's a very exciting place to be, though, to see what that kind of economic growth looks like and the stresses and strains and pleasures that it has for people and, and all of that. You get some sense of what this country was like, you know, a hundred years ago at the height of our industrial transition. But it, but probably even more intense because as I've, I haven't been over there. A friend of mine, his son is over there studying now and will stay and work during the Olympics because it's knows the language right. and um but to think of when i picture the cities I, i'm thinking it's it's like hong kong it's like it where there's just these massive buildings whereas our industrial boom it seems somewhat i don't know le- less intense in a way well, I, think <laughs> I, ours was, <laughs> I think ours was pretty intense too i mean uh, like i was there or something <laughs> the descriptions of you know new york city and it's you know, fastest growth and things are remarkably mm. similar to um, China has such an endless supply of people still flooding in 30 million a year or so into the cities um, that it's a that it's a different dynamic. You know, they're dealing with incredible amounts of pent up demand for basic, basic things, heat, food, light. Um, and it's, of course, causing unbelievable environmental problems. The smog is the worst of it. I mean, the least of it, the, you know, the most important thing they're doing is rivaling us now as suppliers of CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah. That, that's what, one of the things where I've never had a moment um, where I thought that developing countries shouldn't, of course, develop at, at the fastest rate possible, just to bring them whatever, whatever hope or whatever quality of life that 
that that we have as a developed country or, or you know of course but then when reading deep economy and then you're presented with whatever like our country and other countries around the world developed nations are are doing with our cars and the numbers and then you give statistics about how many people will be having cars or and it's just it's yeah it's it, clearly not going to happen i mean if the chinese owned cars at the same rate that americans did there are, what, about 800 million cars in the world now. The Chinese would add 1.1 billion by themselves. And, and, you know, that's what we're trying to do right now. The Indians just launched a $2,500 car, you know. Um, wow. But it's not going to happen. There's not enough stuff. There's not enough rubber. There's not enough gasoline. But There's definitely not enough atmosphere to make it work. So we got to figure out how we're going to reach some kind of international bargain where we tone down our demands on the earth, we make some room for them to do the legitimate things that they have to do, where we figure out a different approach going forward. Right, so we don't all somehow implode or sink or, or whatever. You, yep. Uh, several times you quote uh, Benjamin Friedman, <laughs> and, and you said that this is, he has a glowing defense of economic growth, but the one thing that he sort of has to concede is uh, this, and I quote, carbon dioxide is the one major environmental contaminant for which no study has ever found any indication of improvement as living standards rise. It's not like normal pollution. Carbon monoxide, carbon with one oxygen atom, which is dirty stuff that comes out your tailpipe, you can put a catalytic converter on and the problem's gone. Carbon dioxide, carbon with two oxygen atoms, is uh, invisible, it doesn't harm you directly, and it's the inevitable byproduct of burning fossil fuel. Um, and so there's no way to deal with it save getting off fossil fuel, which is going to be the hardest task that humans have ever undertaken. Yeah, and how yeah, and and how to realize at some point in the book as well towards the end you say, well, if things get really bad quickly, there's a chance that we'll mobilize <laughs> in sort of a way together, sort of. But if it's this, we might dally if it's well, things like are, as it's going now. Things are definitely getting real bad quickly. Yesterday but we're looking away from it. Maybe, maybe we're. Tr I'm doing my best You're to <laughs> focus people's attention back on it. I mean, yesterday. You know, a piece of ice the size of Connecticut broke off the Antarctic Peninsula and dropped into the Southern Ocean. Um, I mean, these are changes on scale that even a few years ago we couldn't have imagined. And so it is time for us to take much more seriously. The size of Connecticut? Yes. The Wilkins Ice Shelf. Yep. Who witnessed that? I, I haven't. I they, didn't there, read there about good, it yet. There are like good who? satellite pictures of it. No, mm -hmm. I mean no one was. I don't think anyone was actually there because they might not have survived actually if they were in the yeah. vicinity. Um, but there are good, easy to find satellite pictures on the on the web of this enormous chunk just. You'll have to have a look. Collapsing, yeah. Maybe to go back for a moment to to the radio, because uh, we we kind of had to skip away from that on the break. Um, I thought it was interesting. I think you, I'm not sure of the the state if it was 
maybe Dakota or Minnesota? Oh, I know what you're thinking of. Fargo, yeah. North Dakota, I think. W- with the with the wreck and the yeah, can, they will had, you tell us the uh, story about that? A train car. The train yeah. Turned over and I it was something came spilling out the side, ammonia probably. That made toxic fumes over right. the town. Right. And so of course the police thought it would be a good idea to go to the radio station and let people know about this so they'd know not to breathe or whatever for a while. And <laughs> yeah, keep my lid on it. <laughs> um, but they went, there were seven radio stations in town, and six of them, I think, were owned by Clear Channel, the big conglomerate, and none of them actually had anybody in them. They were just playing the signal that was coming from Clear Channel. You know, one of them was the, you know, Kicking 100, you know, country, rock. country oh, station. Oh. And okay. yeah, one of them was the, you know, uh, uh, classic rock. And one of them was the oldie station. And one of them was the, you know, indie rock, you know, smashing pumpkins, you know, around the clock. And, Seeming diversity, right? except. But they're all coming from the same office park in Houston or Wichita or wherever it is that their corporate headquarters is. And there was no one to talk to, you know, no one to spread this alarm, no one to do anything. Not even one. There, like a, uh, that's, that's crazy. Right. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for for <laughs> for this. So that's why WCBN, you should always FM. listen to WCBN. That's right. In case something goes disastrously long in Ann Arbor, there's someone here that <laughs> you know could let you know. Right. Ho- hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. No. Of course. We're we're always here. Um, so yeah, the radio, and that's a way of. Um, that's that's a part of of the book, but then you also have the the local food section and you started to talk about that bill with the, the farmers market and um yeah you know i spent a year our family spent a year only eating food that came from our small valley in vermont um i, I love the part where you say your daughter said icky and disgusting during some of the winter months well with like by the, the very the, end the root vegetables. you know enough root vegetables but for the most part we did really well um, and we made a lot of friends. Um, uh, it was a lot better than going to the supermarket. Because you had a CSA farm nearby mm-hmm. as well? Is that? Mm-hmm. And we have all kinds of, turned out there were all kinds of farms, people making fantastic cheese and lots of grass-fed beef and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's so you devote like a big chunk of deep economy to talk about this this experiment. Food that you is did. the most important part of our economy. The one part we literally couldn't do without for very long. So yeah, it seemed appropriate. And what about water, too? Yep, water. We've you know water. We may be um. We may be starting to run short of in a lot of places in the next few years, and it's maybe the single most pressing crisis that we run up against. Also difficult to fathom, isn't it? Because it's something that we, it's almost you believe, um, of course you should should have water (laughs) coming out of a tap. Yes, and we probably in this country won't run out of that, most of us. um, But most water gets used for irrigation. The deep wells that support it now tap into aquifers around the world that are going dry quickly. Um, It's going to exacerbate the food problems we're already in, food problems that are being made worse by our 
insane decision to divert much of our corn crop to making gasoline. Um, we're uh, seeing the convergence of all kinds of trends all at once. None of them very good. It's going to be an interesting next period. How, how do you cope with, because this has been a part of your life um, since, you, since you graduated, mm. basically, from, from school, without being overwhelmed? Is it, is it your family, well, or yeah, is it the and, writing? And or? being outdoors a lot and all of that. But um, mostly it's being able to take action about it, and, you know. Uh, and that's what we kept finding all across the country, that people were very eager for the chance to organize, organize demonstrations, to get together with their neighbors, you know, do, do what they could, um, which is a lot. You know, we've got to be deeply politically involved. We need a movement like the civil rights movement, and we need it fast. I'm wondering if there's any sort of, um, because I feel like, People were mobilized in that way to protest against us going to war as well. So I wonder if some people have felt more because that didn't work. Like the you know the people have spoken, but that that didn't that well, didn't work. Not enough people spoke, and they didn't speak for very long. And you know, and they have suddenly seemed to have decided to not do much speaking since. I mean, the anti-war movement's been pretty limp actually for the most part, and. Um, uh, I'm not completely sure why that is, and it's a great shame because um, there hasn't been a significant enough challenge um, um, Do you come across groups like that bill when you're um, like people who would want to have an alliance with you who as you're traveling the country, so you are aware of groups that oh, are yeah we do a lot of work we've done a lot of work with groups in the past where there's a group called no war, no warming. That mm. attempts to link up those issues, and you know, um, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's where I live in Vermont. We've lost more of our citizens to the war than any state in the union on a per capita basis. People are really sick of it, and actually, Vermont's been one of the few places with a really organized anti-war movement that's. You know, all of our legislators have been working hard to, in fact, city of Brattleboro uh, voted last month to uh, arrest the president if he happened to set foot there anytime oh. soon as a war criminal. Um, wow. They And it passed? It yeah, did? it passed wow. a town meeting. We have town meetings where everybody gets to So it's not just New Hampshire that has the town meeting. No, a town meeting comes from Vermont. From reading your book, Deep Economy, Vermont, of course, because that's where you live, and so much like the food chapter and much and many of the other places connect back to Vermont as this place. It sounds like a paradise. Well, it's not a paradise at all. It's got tons of problems, but its virtue and the reason that I think I live there and keep writing about it is that what makes it different from the rest of the country is scale. It's on a smaller scale hence more intimate and connected. And its political traditions and things reflect and nurture that. You know, we get together in our town for town meeting, and we decide together all the things that we're going to do in the next year, how we're going to spend our money, you know, so on and so forth, what road needs paving and what doesn't. Um, and that's a, uh, 
that's a very different way of being than too much of this country is now. And those questions of scale are very, very important. And 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 your is one of your is it correct to say one of your ideas is if we can use this as a, a type of model? Um because, for example, you even said New York City. That's why New Jersey was called the Garden yeah. State. So there's there's lots and lots of examples, uh, you know, local. now, and it's and it's very key to look around for them. Um, urban agriculture is one of my f- favorite things to write about. Transforming big cities all over the place. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on around the world. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk a little more about that. You're listening to Living Writers today, Bill McKibben. We'll be right back. Listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Bill McKibben. Bill, thanks for thanks for coming and joining joining me in this it's conversation. Good fun. This is a good thing you got going here. Oh, well, well, thank you. That's uh, so. We only have a few more minutes, so I'm going to attempt to kind of squeeze quite a bit in. And if Let's there's anything it. that you we can do it d- rapid fire. <laughs> okay. I can answer yes, no. No. <laughs> It never works that way on Living Writers. There was a question, uh, there was something in uh, the chapter Deep Economy where you were talking about this transforming the cities. And you you named Detroit as perhaps the Mm -hmm. the most wrecked example Mm. of a city um, for many reasons. You know, uh, uh, for evacuated population uh, by half, uh, um, you know, the dilapidated uh, and, and uh, abandoned buildings, it's et major industry wrecked by endless bad decisions. They continue. Yes. Yes. And but then in the book, there's something hopeful where you said the University of Detroit, uh, their architecture school, has some plans. People of keep bringing... coming up with these incredibly interesting sort of Renaissance plans for the city that aren't about building, you know, huge baseball stadiums or convention centers. Although those are finished. Yeah. <laughs> it's about, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there's unbelievable amount of open land in Detroit now, and people are starting to farm it in, you know, all kinds of cool ways. People are starting to recreate a kind of village life in parts of the most blighted parts of that city. Um, 
that could be really cool and interesting to watch it happen. And it, and is it is the genesis from? Are you saying it's from the people and the neighborhoods? Yeah. Or the university well, is having a hand in it? Well, there are people studying it now and mm-hmm. coming up with more plans and things. But yeah, the, you know, these things always go. Uh, you know, it reminded me in a way of being in Havana and watching what happened when, you know, the the country's inane economic system fell apart when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and suddenly there was no more sort of shipments of food coming in from the outside. Um, they had to figure out what to do. And what they basically did was build a uh, nationwide sort of organic agriculture uh, regime, um, incredible amounts of small-scale urban farming all across Havana and, and other cities. Um, they loosened up some of the uh, extremely counterproductive centralized planning kind of things and let people sell their produce and stuff, and and they survived. Um, um, clearly, since, you know, Fidel outlasted yet another president or two before, you know, he finally it turned it over to his brother. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we haven't been overly clever in our uh, response to them. And they've done some they've done some pretty bad things and they've done some pretty clever ones, too. And so, so you were there. You were traveling, obviously, when probably Americans weren't really welcome. And do you. Well, actually, the Cubans were only too happy to let people come in. Um, they, Just the U.S. They, doesn't want to grant the you The U.S. doesn't want, <laughs> want you to go there. There's an exception in the um, in the law that prevents Americans from going there that allows journalists with assignments to go. It's almost the only exception. But I had to work months to get a license. They wouldn't let my wife go with me, you know, on and on. I mean, it was they didn't want me there. One more example of the folly of our uh, uh, dealings with Cuba. Yes. Um, when you when you did go, so you did eventually get the assignment and you, yes. you went, do you have, um, is your method of working, do you have all these notebooks that are constantly going? Because it seems that that that, that must have given birth to a, a separate article that's probably in the yeah. reader, but then we also have it coming back as part of your argument yes. within deep economy. Yeah. And and these images of like a, a person who's a scientist who has, when their people's plants are weak, he's got like yeah. a tin can of some, like these yeah. great images and stories that then you can, that, that you can use, it seems Absolutely. Like. That's, reporters are good recyclers and you think about things from different angles and figure out how to put them all together. That's for my writing life. That's a big part of it. But you say, you say reporter and, and you're, you're kind of taking that as, as a, as a tag. But before, when we started, you said, this is, this is probably one of the, 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 the writers that are giving the gift of like a literary legacy of some sort, like a, uh, it, are, are the environmental and nature mm-hmm. writers of this yep. time. And so you, you see it as a very much of a, a literary pursuit and well, I'm, you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm a writer, but I'm a reporter. I mean, that's what I, you know, love to do is get out and understand the world, um, uh, see what's going on, and then bring it home and write about it. That's one of my jobs, you know. And I don't know whether that's, I, I make no claims at high literature. Um, um, I just do what I do. 
well, it's good that you are doing it. And I hope that, I hope, uh, as you said, like the, the fighting seems to be kind of a higher percentage of your time than the yeah. writing. But I hope, <laughs> nice rhyme, by the way. Yes. <laughs> but I hope that that's, that won't continue to be the trend. I hope so, too. I'm eager to get back to, to have more time to write. And I miss it a lot. Do you always have a notebook going? Do you always have something yeah. that you're you're carrying around? Oh yeah. And um, I uh, quickly I wanted to also uh, mention like the the quote that you have from the Sorbonne. Uh, uh, the student said, "We wish to escape from imaginary worlds." Yeah, these um, were <laughs> economic students who were protesting against the kind of abstraction of that economics has become, and it's endless fixation on growth without asking what that's actually meaning. They started a movement called the Post-Autistic Economics Movement, which I thought was a very good name. Um, and in fact, you know, the most interesting and fastest growing parts of the economics profession, at least among young economists, I think have a lot to do with ecological economics, with behavioral economics, with looking past the kind of endless um, machinery of neoclassical economics and trying to do something more interesting. And so, so the young people, uh, they are, they're saying, look, this is, this is, we want what Let's is real. Let's ask some deeper questions. Exactly yeah, right. Deeper, yeah. The deeper exactly questions, right. the deep economy. That's it. <laughs> and the hyper-individualism. That's something that um, we, we're going to be, I don't know, hopefully getting away from, at least to get to more of the... Building a little more community. Cheap fossil fuel has let us be the first people in the world who had no need of our neighbors, you know. Or and having it, alcoves in your house for your an, <laughs> an internet alcove. That's it, instead of a family room. That's right. That's great, yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? Well, there's even though that's crazy, there's many very important and sound and, and ideas that are well put. I really enjoyed reading this. And, and I saw the layers. I started thinking about what my sandwich was made of today, Bill. So you've, you've changed another there person. <laughs> Where did this come from? <laughs> what, what, are, what am I wearing today? There you go. So thank you so much, Bill McKibben, uh, for being on the program. It's been great fun, T. It's yeah. a good show. You do it well. Well, thank you. We'll come back any, okay, any time. You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks for listening. Ann Arbor streaming, Florida, Chicago, Seattle. Thanks again to Alex. And uh, until next time. Face it, an investment of two and a half cents will never make you rich. Yet, when that two and a half cents is used to purchase a condom and combined with HIV counseling and education, it becomes one of the most profitable investments imaginable. It becomes an investment in life. 
Every minute, 10 people are infected with the virus that causes AIDS. And in that same minute, six people will die. Of those infected, almost half of the new cases are young people under the age of 25. And many are women. Until there is a cure, investing in HIV prevention, including condoms, is the best way to stop the spread of this deadly disease. Population Action International is committed to universal access to reproductive health services, including essential supplies like condoms. For more information, visit us at populationaction.org. Family planning, woman by woman, family by family, for the sake of the next generation. Broadcasting from the Democratic National Convention in Denver, Colorado, this is Free Speech Radio News. It's Wednesday, the 27th of August, 2008. I'm Aura Bogado. And I'm Leanne Caldwell. On today's newscast, we'll hear what the latest census does and doesn't reveal about poverty in the U.S. And we'll hear about a snag and a plan for long-term federal funding for Native American health care. We'll go to the headlines shortly. But first, we do have some updates from the situation outside the DNC. At least four more people were arrested yesterday by police. And today, protesters are criticizing fencing put up overnight, cordoning off Civic Center Park, ground zero for activists. Organizers for an annual food and entertainment event here called A Taste of Colorado says dividing the park is necessary.